Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this evening for a Wednesday Bible study through the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, with Pastor John King. And so tonight we'll be in chapter 11 of Leviticus. Uh, it's good to have you guys here tonight. We start out with a little commentary. Last week we had the judgment of Nadab and Abihu, and then this week we're going to talk about food permitted and food forbidden. Toward the end of the previous section, the Lord gave Aaron these instructions. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel. That's chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. Now those two categories are going to be the focus for the next several sections all the way through chapter 15. These are known as the purity laws. And what is, uh, these laws contain uh, instructions about being able to distinguish clean and unclean. And then when we get to chapters 17 through 20, we'll be talking about laws that distinguish holy and common. So clean and unclean, holy and common are going to be some interesting discussions. Now the purity laws extended Israel's, uh, quote, acted theology beyond worship into daily life. The rituals of worship expressed Israel's fellowship with the Lord in his house, in the sanctuary, or in the tabernacle. These purity laws taught Israel to live as God's forgiven people in their own houses. The New Testament apostles set aside these purity laws because they were temporary object lessons superseded by the reality to which they pointed completed in the work of Christ. Like sacrifices, purity laws are no longer applicable as Christian practice, but like sacrifices, purity laws still offer rich insights into the work of Christ. The big picture is, as God's, or as the society of God's favor, Israel was a royal nation living like a privileged nobility around God's palace. So let me open with prayer. Father, we thank you for our time in the Word tonight, and we ask, Lord, that you would simply go before us in this uh, very um, uh, involved but simple concept of uh, clean and unclean and uh, certain types of food. And Lord, help us really to uh, mainly understand what it all pointed to in our lives today. Help us to apply those principles. We ask that you go before us now. We pray it in Jesus' name. So as we read tonight's passages, and we're not going to read them word for word, we'll hit the highlights, but we need to keep in mind some key considerations. Why is, giving, why is God giving these uh, instructions, specific commands to Israel? And two main reasons I'm just going to highlight, there's probably some other reasons, but one of the main reasons that people bring to the table here is for health reasons, uh, first off. And then secondly, and most importantly, for spiritual purposes. Scholars and commentators frequently point out that based on our understanding of today of foodborne illnesses and disease, most of the unclean animals, the birds and the fish, uh, either had a higher risk of illness if not properly prepared. An example would be trichinosis for undercooked pork or when they were exposed to more bacteria, and those are the bottom-dwelling fish and the shellfish, 
or scavenging birds. And also we know that these animals could spread disease, rats and mice and rodents and such. So those are health reasons and, and there's a lot of discussion about that and we'll cover some of that tonight. But the spiritual purpose is the main thing we need to understand and that's the fact that Israel was chosen by God to be distinct and set apart from all other nations. God more, had more than health in mind when he gave the cleansing laws. God had a spiritual purpose in mind. And all of these spiritual purposes were symbolic of a spiritual truth. As we go through this, we'll see that. The surrounding nations and the people were living unholy lives. They were living in immorality and lawlessness. But God's people were to be distinct and different. And they were to live holy lives. We, we know that to be true for us. That's the, what Christ and the instruction we have in the Bible about how we live our lives as well. There were, they were to bear a strong testimony that they follow God and obey His commandments. They ate only clean food. They took care of their bodies, kept them clean and healthy, all in obedience to God's law. Every time they sat down for a meal, they'd be reminded of God's you know, separateness that they, God placed them. And every time they sat down, they'd be reminded of that. And then, of course, the other question you could get asked is, are these laws governing food valid for Christian believers today? And the short answer is no. They're no longer needed. That's the reason why. Now, you may choose to keep a kosher table in your house. You have the freedom to do that. Um, but it's not needed to fulfill your faith as a Christian. We, we know this for several reasons. First of all, God revealed, when he revealed the mystery of the church, we've been learning in Ephesians, when he revealed the mystery of the church to Paul, he explained uh, to us that the, the separation, the barrier, the wall of separation, the religious barrier between Jews and Gentiles was demolished. And so that extends to the food as well, the ceremonial. Um, one uh, writer, Gordon Wenham, he says this, he said, they could only serve to divide mankind into Jew and Gentile if you kept these dietary laws. What they would do is they would continue to separate. And you see that now, just in general, when you see Orthodox Jews, they, they're, they're very separate from the rest of the community as far as how they eat. They have two refrigerators, you know, a lot of things that they do. Yeah, keeping a kosher table. Um, so if you were to keep those in place, you would continue that separation, but Jesus never intended for that to happen. And so he came, you know, Ephesians 1.10 says God's purpose was revealed in Christ to unite all things in him. So the distinction between clean and unclean foods is as obsolete as between Jew and Gentile in today's world, in the church. We also remember the Apostle Peter. He was given an affirmation of this, uh, as you may recall, in Acts 10, 9 through 16, where Peter went to his housetop to pray, and then he fell into a trance. And uh, he said he saw, verse 11, he saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound on all four corners descending to him and let down on the earth. And in this sheet were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice said to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
And Peter said, Oh, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. He was a well-trained Jew. But then a voice in verse 15 spoke to him again a second time and said, What God has cleansed you must not call common. And this was done three times, and then the object was taken back into heaven. Now Peter would shortly find himself in the home of this Roman centurion named Cornelius, right? And uh, Cornelius had a, had a visit from the, an angel, you know, and the angel said, spoke to him. And so when Peter came to this man's house, he was testifying that the Lord had changed his heart. And he said in Acts 10.28, uh, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to another one of another nation, standing in Cornelius' house saying this. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So Peter got it. You know, the food thing really meant the wall of separation has been torn down and Jews and Gentiles were now part of the church. And then he presented the gospel. The whole house got saved. They were speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And, and Peter was, you know, again, he was just amazed to see that now the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles too. So what, what Jesus set out to do was accomplished. And now we see the church continue to grow from that day on. Also, Jesus established an ab abolition of dietary laws during his ministry before he even went to the cross. Uh, he used the occasion when the Pharisees complained about his disciples eating food with unwashed hands. You remember that from Mark chapter 7. It says, When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone who has ears hear, let him hear. And when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And so this is what he said to them. Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and it is eliminated thus purifying all foods. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a man, that's what defiles him. And he goes on, he lifts from within that the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, and murders, go on and on and on. Um, but really what Jesus was doing in verse 19, he's, he's basically purifying all foods right then and there with what he said. Because it's not about what you take in. Uh, you, can't, it's a, you can't call something uh, common when God's made it clean. And then finally, Jesus, we could, there's many other examples, but if one more example was Jesus at the, the well in Samaria with the Samaritan woman. It says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So, you know, there was a very polarized uh, xenophobic society going on and Jesus put an end to that but back to our text where in verse 1 through 8 we see what God had put in place at that time <clears throat> so we have that understanding going in I guess that's helpful I don't know I hope it is you probably already had it it says now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying to them speak to the children of Israel these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, and chewing the cud, that you may eat. 
Now, chewing the cud refers to the behavior of an animal when it swallows its food and it puts it in one of its stomachs. It doesn't chew it much. And then it regurgitates it and chews it, chews its cut, and then, you know, kind of comes up for, you know, uh, dessert, seconds and dessert and such not. And so it's, it's sort of this process. We don't do that, do we? No. <laughs> Doug? <laughs> not in good company. Not in, not in good company, yeah. So there were two things. Not only choose its cut, but it has to be divided at the hoof. And so uh, he goes on and he says, among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hoofs, chewing the cud, you may eat. So he had those two requirements. And he says, nevertheless, you, you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hoofs. So you have some that do and some that don't. And then he gives an example of the camel. And then he explains it because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hoofs. It is unclean to you. And then the rock hyrax because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hoofs. It's unclean to you. And the hare because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hoofs. It's unclean. And then the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hoofs, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. And then in Deuteronomy 14, when we get to that, there's a more a longer list of uh, things of what you can eat. Uh, you can eat the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. So there's a lot of wild game you can eat. But uh, in any event, verses 1 and 2 show us these were God-given commands. This wasn't something that Moses and Aaron made up. Um... When it says it is unclean to you, the Hebrew term used here, uh, tame, means unclean or impure. And it's the sense of a ritual purity, not physical cleanliness. Because all animals are dirty in some respect. But these are specific. Now, swine were widely domesticated in the ancient Near East. Uh, so this kind of Dietary restriction really stood out as a mark of identity for a lot of people groups. Interesting to note, archaeologists have noted that the Iron Age sites inhabited by the Philistines and then the Ammonites attest to the popularity of the pig for consumption. By contrast, sites from the central hill country associated with Israel show no evidence of pig domestication or consumption. This evidence indicates that the Israelite taboo against consuming swine was an early and distinctive marker of Israelite identity. And later, Greco-Roman writers also took notice of the Jewish avoidance of pork as a key distinction between Jewish and Roman eating habits. It says, their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch. So, it was interesting because uh, when you say carcass, you mean a dead animal. So they rode camels, so they could touch a live animal, but they couldn't touch a dead animal, and they certainly couldn't eat the forbidden ones. So they, weren't, they wouldn't become unclean by riding on a, a camel or a donkey. And, you know, so you say, okay, well, so far, how does this apply to me? 
in a sense, you know, we're expected by God to keep our bodies clean and healthy, both physically and spiritually. I mean, God, He looks for us to do that. In fact, 1 Timothy 4, 8, it says, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of life that is now and that which is to come. So it's, it's biblical to take care of your health. Next we have water creatures, clean and unclean. 9 through 12. Uh, it goes in, these are the, all you may eat are of the water, whatever the water has, whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or the rivers, that you may eat. But in all the seas or in all the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are actually an abomination to you. And they shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, it shall be an abomination to you. Now why was there a differentiation between fish with scales and fins without? Again, if you look at the hygiene as a possible reason, uh, bottom feeders, we know, eat waste products from the bottom of the river and the bottom of the ocean, wherever they go. Uh, you, if you get certain shellfish around certain areas where there's a lot of septic systems going in, like around Hatteras Island and stuff, you don't want to get oysters that are very close, okay? You want to have those oyster beds that are kind of offshore. Um, so it's, it could be a, a, um, a hygiene reason. Also, uh, no, of note, even the Romans and the Egyptians didn't eat fish without scales, apparently. Um, but uh, uh, one interesting commentator, and there's not a lot of commentary on this particular chapter, by the way, but one particular one named Douglas, she suggests that the normal propulsion, you know, part of a way a fish swims with the fins and scales aids in the propulsion, and that's sort of normal because most fish species have scales, you know. And so uh, she, she kind of puts up the idea that this kind of indicates how God uses nature to illustrate the difference between normal and subnormal existence and using the fish in ex as an example. Uh, compares to what God expects from his people in a moral and a spiritual sense. So you can take that for what it's worth. So you had the water creatures, and then you had the flying creatures, verses 13 through 19. And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. And then they give example of birds of prey, the eagle, the vulture, and the buzzard. Now birds, the word used here, uh, is oaf, which literally rendered as a flying thing. And again, Deuteronomy 14 has a list that's nearly identical. Um, but in general, the clean birds include doves, pigeons, quail, chickens, geese, ducks, and sparrows. But the impure birds, these birds of prey or carrion eaters, are connected with death. Unlike the water creatures, there are no apparent biological features that mark certain birds as unclean. That's what one writer says. So it's, it's a little bit confusing as to why these particular ones, but we do uh, get a better explanation here in a little bit. Uh, another list in verse 19, uh, smaller list, you, you shall not eat the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopoe, I, I hope you wouldn't eat that, and the bat. 
Now you say, wait a minute, a bat's not a bird, a bat's a mammal. But it said flying creatures, so there you have it. Can't catch, you can't catch them on a technicality. Now, Wenham, Gordon Wenham says this, most modern commentators agree that it is the symbolism of preying on other animals that makes birds of prey unclean. They are killers and blood drinkers, and what do they do? They break the law. You're not allowed to consume blood. In Israel, writes another commentator, animals were expected to obey the covenant law. Both man and his beast were required to keep the Sabbath. You read that in Exodus 20.10. He had to keep his animals. They had to keep the Sabbath. Because these birds' eating patterns break the fundamental principle of not eating flesh with blood in it, they are declared unclean, just as men who eat flesh without draining off the blood become unclean. Interesting. Next on the menu is flying insects. All flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you, yet those you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. But all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. Uh, one of the, the flying insects, when you, if the Hebrew designation for this word that we call flying insects, um, is literally rendered as swarming things that fly. So, again, more generalized in nature. Um, the jointed legs above their feet that leap, this certainly refers to the hind legs of, you know, a grasshopper and whatnot, that it can hop and leap. And we know that it's not unclean to eat those because of who? John the Baptist, right? Matthew 3, 4, now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. So he ate, he knew, you know, he was a Jew, so he would have not have broken, he was an Old Testament prophet, the last one, and he would not have broken the law. Very few commentators have much to say about this prohibition. And it just may be, you know, you think about it, the kind of general disgust when you see a swarming type of insects, you know, whether it's termites or flying ants or, you know, if you've ever been in places where they just kind of pile up mayflies when they come in and they pile up all over the place, you know, it's kind of gross. Mm -hmm. Same thing with worms and stuff, creeping things we're going to talk about here in a minute. Now... This next section, verses 24 through 28, talks about becoming unclean by touching dead animals. And really, the section is, is uh, trying to explain how impurity can be contracted by touching as opposed to eating. This isn't about consumption. This is about touching unclean things. Um, it says, By these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries part of the carcass in any of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. You know, uh, farm life, you know, agricultural life, you have to handle dead animals. That's just part of life. 
and so it was a short-term cleansing process. You know, it wasn't it wasn't something like a sin that was committed. It was just a, a, a purity. And so, you know, you notice it's only until evening that they clean their clothes and they were unclean till evening. Unclean, I like what Guzik says this, uh, a couple of comments from Guzik. Unclean animals, when dead, couldn't just be left in the community to rot. They had to be disposed of. But people who disposed of the unclean animals had to deal with their uncleanness by washing in a brief quarantine. This meant that if a dead rat was found in an Israelite village, it would be carefully and promptly disposed of. And the one disposing of it would have to wash afterward. You would do the same thing. I mean, it's almost common sense. Interesting, though, this, this practice would help prevent disease in a very significant way in future times. When the, when the bubonic plague, the Black Death, killed one quarter of Europe's population in the 1300s, many Jewish communities were largely spared because they followed these hygienic regulations. Sadly, because these Jewish communities were often spared uh, the high death count from the plague, they were many times accused and punished for having caused the plague. These were sad chapters in the history of Christianity. Next, we talk about lizards and rodents. It says in verse 29 and 30, These also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth, the mole, the mouse, and the large lizard after its kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. Lizards and rodents were prohibited because they swarm on the land. Again, uh, you come into a swarm of rats. No. You're not going to like that. Anything that these swarming creatures come into contact with becomes unclean and must be destroyed or purified. And that's what verses 31 through 38, and I'm just going to hit the highlights for that, but this is the pollution caused by the swarming creatures. You know, when you get an infestation of something, uh, it causes pollution. So in verse 32, he says, whichever of them, so if they fall on, if they're dead animals, dead rat, dead mouse, whatever it is, if it falls on things such as wood, clothing, or skin, or sack, or anything the work is done, it must be put in water, and then it could be unclean until evening, then it shall be clean. So there was a process, you know, you, come in, uh, you came in contact with something. And then he goes on, he says, but any earthen vessel in which any of them falls into, um, you consider that to be unclean. And if, the, if it's made where there's any edible food which water falls, it becomes unclean, and any drink that may be drunk from it becomes unclean. So solid food moistened by water becomes unclean when it comes into contact with the carcass. Liquid in a vessel that becomes contaminated is also contaminated. I mean, this is common sense, you know. Um, also, verse 35, uh, it talks about whether it falls on an oven or a cooking stove. And a lot of times they were ceramic, and those would be rendered unclean. Um, if there were metal vessels, they could be purified in fire, but if they were ceramic, porous, they had to be destroyed. Same thing in verse 36. If, he, if, if the, the dead animal goes into a drinking water supply, um, there's a procedure for that. But whatever touches any such carcass becomes unclean. You guys have heard of Giardia? 
It's where like a dead animal falls in a stream and puts bacteria in the water and you're out there hiking like, you know, out hunting or hiking and you go drink from that stream, but there's a dead deer or beaver down the river and you don't know it, you can contract Giardia and it can make you really sick. And so you take it out uh, and then you do the uh, ritual cleaning. Anyway, very thorough, you notice, uh, very thorough processes. Next, we have the clean animal carcasses. Again, a dead animal is a dead animal, whether it's clean or unclean, and you don't want to come in contact with it. Uh, so you get the same procedure, wash your clothes, be unclean until evening. So most of these prohibitions really do promote health and hygiene, similar to what we would do today. Uh, verses 41 through 44, now it, it gets a little more specific, um, the purpose for the dietary laws. Now it goes from, from the hygiene to the spiritual aspect of it. He says, In every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, verse 41, shall be an abomination, it shall not be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, whatever has many feet among all creeping things, reminds me of a uh, centipede or something like that. Um, those you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. And then 43, you shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. Verse 44, for I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile, your, but defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Again, Guzik says this, he says, For I am the Lord your God. God claims the right to speak to every area of our life, including what we eat. And he had the right to tell Israel what to eat and what not to eat. Because a lot of times people are going to go, Okay, I, you know, why is he being so hard? Why can't they do these things? Uh, when we know in the New Covenant, it's all been taken away. You know, you can have your scorpion on a stick or whatever you want to have at the state fair, or your fried butter, or however you're going to eat. Um, a lot of the rationale kind of comes back down to this small section. It says, and you shall be holy for I am holy. In other words, you're trying to emulate. You have a requirement to emulate God's own holiness as a child of God. And God chose Israel. He was going to get them on every aspect of their life, what they ate, how they dressed, and everything else. Defiling yourself, this is both being both physically and spiritually, uh, again, to avoid sickness and disease. Uh, I like how uh, David Guzik breaks it. He kind of summarizes. He said, among the animals, most considered unclean fell into three categories. You had the predators, and they were unclean because they ate both the flesh and the blood of animals. You had uh, scavengers, because they were carriers of disease and they regularly contacted dead bodies. And then you had um, scavengers, predators, excuse me, where's the other category? Oh, potentially poisonous or dangerous foods such as shellfish, and stuff like that. And so eliminating those from the diet of ancient Israel promoted good health among them. Finally, Leviticus 11, 45-47, he repeats it. He says, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, and therefore 
Be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every creeping living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. So that really just summarizes everything we just went through. So and our final thoughts, uh, I like what Gordon Wenham has to say. In giving all these laws, it says, this is not to say that these laws have nothing to teach a Christian. As we have seen, there were constant reminders to Israel that they were chosen to be a holy people and that they were called to imitate God and that the laws were a reminder to give thanks for this calling. So a New Testament believer is in a very similar position. The church is now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. That's First Peter uh, two nine. Though the Christian is so much more privileged than ancient Israel, it is easily to take for granted the grace that has been given to him and fail to acknowledge it. The ancient food laws were designed to curb such forgetfulness. Like we said, every time they sat down, they'd have a reminder of their restricted diet. We don't think anything about what well, we sit down and we do. <laughs> we plan it out, we enjoy it, but we don't tend to think of it in a way... Uh, that they would think of it because they had to maintain this very specific diet and they'd be reminded and they knew what other people groups were eating so. so there's a connection between biblical thinking and the, and the kind of the wholeness and the holiness or integrity of a person and when we think about the spiritual aspect we think about character um and even our physical uh, well-being, it ties into all those things. We also see that these rules were symbols of moral order. You know, they kept kind of things in their own place, if you will. And we see the breakdown of society as our society starts throwing away all uh, of God's influence. Now anything goes, we know the situation, how things are unbelievably turning <laughs> in such a strange direction, you know. Black is white and white is black and such not. Uh, so, you know, there are moral order. There's, there's things that God set aside that kind of keeps everybody's sanity, <laughs> whether you're a believer or not. And uh, this world we're living in is trying to take that away. David Guzik does say that some Christians, we believe that we're under an obligation to observe these dietary laws of clean and unclean animals today. I remember about 20 years ago, uh, Margaret attended a, uh, it was a good, uh, like a seminar being held by a, a you know, a well-known doctor who wrote a book and he had his own cookbook. And his point was, you know, you're not bound to these dietary regulations, but they can sure help you and stop the spread of cancer and heart disease and diabetes. And he, he gave a lot of good examples of the connection between the unclean foods, you know, shellfish and certain types of food and what they tend to cause health-wise if you eat them. Uh, and it, it didn't, at the time, there was no GMO discussion going on, but it was mainly, um, you know, what, what processed foods can do to you, what t certain types of uh, seafood and meat can do to you. And so for many years, we did, did not eat pork. We did, you know, and, and we were probably healthier for it. We ate a lot, a lot less red meat, 
We're not like that anymore. <laughs> but, uh, and because, you know, it's, it's not an obligation, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't make good sense to eat healthy. Not at all. And in fact, if you want to live uh, longer and healthier, it has a lot to do with your diet and your exercise. But not always. Because you don't want to be, uh, live under bondage to food, right? I mean, that's a thing you can get too strange. And uh, there was a time when it seemed like all the believers that we were meeting 20 years ago were homeschooled, natural food, didn't eat pork, I mean, all this stuff, you know. And what that does, it's not bad. It's just sort of like a trend. But then, you know, you start maybe putting up, you know, bondage, I should say. And it can get a little clicky, I suppose, because not everybody agrees with all that. So you just got to be careful with it. But, you know, this is these were laws for their own home. So what you do in your own home is your own business. So you respect all those things. <clears throat> Apart from these considerations, Christians are free to eat or not eat whatever they please. And no one should think themselves more right with God because they don't eat or because they eat certain things. I think that's the bottom line. Romans 14.4 says, I know, and I am, this is Paul, I know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So it comes back down to the moral conscious. Um, but anyway, that's, uh, that concludes our lesson for tonight from Leviticus 11. Close in prayer. Father, we thank you for opening up uh, more of your truth. Lord, we, when we see and we realize that this was written because you spoke it and it came from you, and even though we may not fully understand all of the reasons why you chose certain animals and put certain restrictions, hopefully, Lord, we have a better understanding of what it means to submit to you even if we don't understand it but also to see the value and to see uh, you know what it means to have a clean moral character and to see how that can tie into all of the aspects all of the things we live and yes Lord we thank you for the grace that we live under, under today we thank you for the freedom that we do have to enjoy uh, different foods that are prepared and, and, you know, we, we just uh, we get to celebrate with those things. We get to have fellowship over those meals, and we're very blessed for that. And so, Lord, we just thank you for all that you do and all that you provide for us. Thank you for the insight that you provide to us through all of your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.